The Perfect Ten. With Steve Allen, voice of the NRL and six-time Radio Award winner. Yeah, welcome to another edition of The Perfect Ten. And there's a real buzz in the Perfect Ten studios. Mark Hughes is about to join us. He's a two-time Premiership winner with the Newcastle Knights. The first was just incredible, 1997. Famous for a short side play by Andrew Johns to Darren Albert and Newcastle win their first title. I would have loved to have been in Newcastle around that time. What a win, what a moment. Then in 2001, they defeat Parramatta, the greatest attacking team in rugby league history. And Newcastle, well, it's an absolute ambush. 24-0 at halftime, Billy Peden, Ben Kennedy, both on fire. Andrew Johns puts on a masterclass and Newcastle win 30 points to 24. 2001, Mark also fulfills a lifelong dream and plays for New South Wales in the State of Origin series. And then, of course, in 2013, Mark's life changes forever when he's diagnosed with brain cancer. He's told he's got a tumour the size of a small avocado. Then, in the next breath, he's told there's no cure. But he vows to fight. Mark and his wife, Kira Lee, are also determined to make a difference. So the Mark Hughes Foundation is born, and can you believe? I mean, it's just mind-blowing. They've raised close to $30 million for brain cancer research and help families going through their worst nightmare. Well, Mark Hughes is waiting patiently on the line, but I might bring him in nice and early because, Hughesy, you actually know our sponsors, Robson Civil Projects. Ah, sure do. They're great people. I had the pleasure via Kurt Gidley to go and talk on site and meet all the staff with them. And they're just a wonderful local uh, company that certainly want to give back and they've supported the Mark Hughes Foundation. So Greg and all the team treated me really well. Never forget, Greg, as we're leaving, he got attacked by this plover. (laughs) (laughs) I just was watching him getting attacked by a plover. Um, But... um, (laughs) <laughs> it gave me a good laugh. But, um, yeah, no, great people. Yeah, absolutely. They're celebrating their 60th anniversary as well, and not just on the Central Coast, but right through the Hunter Valley, now in Dubbo, and doing some huge projects in Sydney as well. Husey, uh, this is my opportunity to uh, give you the mandatory standing ovation um, as a two-time Premiership winner, also State of Origin representative and everything you've done with the Mark Hughes Foundation. Uh, welcome to the Perfect Ten podcast. Oh, sit, sit down, Steve. Uh, the standing <laughs> ovation is nice, but you can sit back down, get, get back in your seat, get comfortable. I appreciate that and um, appreciate your support, mate. You've always um, supported me through my journey, so I certainly jumped at the chance to have a good chat to you today. Yeah, and I haven't got the wingman, the great Michael Butner. Yes, yes. Um, always, uh, I love it. It seems to be every time when I'm coming home from Sydney after the beanie round, I uh, I get uh, you pair on the line and um, enjoy having a chat as always. And Mick's such a great fella and gives back a lot to the community himself. So um, I love 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 the chat. Yeah, and uh, you're actually Michael's nemesis because we'll talk about 1997 when Michael was at the Bears, and then also 2001 when he was at Parramatta, the greatest point scoring team in rugby league history. And you guys get the job done that night. But let's uh, let's start to unpack Mark Hughes and your upbringing. Can you tell us about growing up in Curry Curry? Yeah, mate, I, I loved Curry Curry. Um, it's forty five minutes to an hour out of Newcastle, 
and just just a place where they love their sport. Very passionate about rugby league. Uh, I was a very passionate and uh, quite quite a handy cricketer as well in summer. So you know we didn't have beaches and all that stuff. So it was really sport orientated. And as a youngster, I I loved my rugby league. You know, I plastered my walls um, with photos of my favourite players. And um, I just wanted to be one of them. And I think every night I'd go to bed thinking about that and wake up the next morning and look at those pictures again. And I think the, the visualisation that I was doing was a, a really important thing, looking back on it. But um, I, didn't, I, I didn't, you know, had a great family and stuff, but I didn't excel at uh, rugby league, but I really loved it. And I did go through a lot of struggles. Um, I didn't go through the junior systems. I didn't make a rep team. I didn't look like making a rep team. So it took me a while, um, but I stuck. I stuck to my guns, and you know, just just toiled away uh, with the mighty Curry Bulldogs. And eventually, when I was 18, I got a lucky break into the Curry first grade team, and we won a grand final against West Newcastle. And I was lucky to score two tries in that game. And from that point, um, I got a trial at the Knights, and things started to turn for me. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that because it's a legendary team with some players that I really loved, but. Um... When you said about posters on the wall, who's on the wall? Who were your favourite players? I was heavy Parramatta in the early eighties. Um, I think the I think particularly the eighty six grand final had a had a big bearing on me, and definitely um, Peter Sterling, definitely Brett Kenny. Um, but I just idolised the whole team, um, and I had their photos all over the walls. And um, I remember back then there was the Eel magazine. This Parramatta magazine would come out, and I'd race up to buy that and. I just loved it, and we, I had one or two trips to Sydney to watch them play, and I thought that was amazing. So, yeah, that was me as a youngster. And then 1988, the Knights came in, so I certainly kept a close eye on that, but I still I still had loyalties to Parramatta uh, the first couple of years, and it was a few years later I um, quickly um, started to follow the Knights, uh, particularly being a curry-curry boy, you know, the Johns brothers and Billy Peden started to come in, and they're, they're Coalfields, which is Cessnock right next to... Curry Curry, and I really, really probably from about uh, early early 90s, I, I, I formed an attachment to the Knights. Yeah, and you're talking about a period where there's not saturation coverage of the National Rugby League like there is today. So when you said about going to get or trying to immerse yourself in as much Parramatta as possible, it's because you may not see them on TV too often. Yeah, uh, I grew up where it was, um, I think Channel 10 had the rights maybe, and There'd be a, a game on. Uh, Saturday afternoon was ABC, mm. uh, the game of the round. I used to love that. And I remember they used to replay it Sunday morning, so I'd watch it again. Then I remember there'd be a local, the Sydney Rugby Union on after that. But, um, yeah, you'd get a couple of games. And I, 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 I recall listening to a lot of radio. I love talkback radio and just talking about footy and and listening to rugby league. So I did spend a lot of Sundays listening to radios. You've probably been asked this a thousand times, but Maddie's five years older than you, Matthew Johns. Joey is two years older. So when's the first time you see the brothers in action? Well, it's a long history. Um, I went to St. Peter's High School at Maitland. So when I was in year seven, Joey was in year nine, and Maddie was in year 12, I think it was. So I knew Joey at that point and we'd have um, conversations, but Joey was the, you know, he was the little gun halfback, you know, Joey, Andrew Johns plays for the Knights. He was playing under 15s or seven, whatever it was. And so he had that reputation, but yeah. So from that age, um, 
I, I sort of knew him. So that was, um, I knew all about the boys. And then um, then I'd go and watch him on, on the hill uh, and they'd be playing reserve grade and they were doing really well. Back then, reserve grade, you know, in 21s, you'd watch all the players and they'd wear the, you know, number 31 and 32 <laughs> and, you know. But, you know, you'd watch these, like we had the Kamali brothers after the Johns brothers in reserve grade. But, you know, you'd watch all these great young local players and then you'd see them go into first grade. It was a, it was good to follow the journey. But for me, I would follow the, the Johns boys very closely because I felt like I had a, you know, a close connection with them. Yeah. Hey, for our listeners, how many in the Hughes family? So I've got a younger brother. He's, uh, he's uh, 41, I think now, and mum and dad. Um, so, yeah, we grew up there and had a great upbringing. Um, you know, just really um, a really normal, great family um dad used to support me mum and dad and everything i did but they didn't they didn't try and uh, coach me or they just let me do my thing um and i think i'm very grateful that i that that's the way they they did it so do you feel like you're a better cricketer at the time or a better rugby league player uh definitely uh in my early teens i think cricket started to come ahead i wasn't that big and stuff and there's a lot of big boys in the footy. So I was doing really well with cricket. I had a tour of New Zealand with a Newcastle team uh, at the age of 14 or 15. So, I, yeah, I was loving my cricket. So till the age of 14 or 15, 16, I think um, it was pretty close, but probably cricket was probably I was stronger. And I tell people that I've made the wrong decision because I only <laughs> played for New South Wales uh, in rugby league and I was destined to wear the baggy green in cricket. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. And were you a batsman, bowler, all-rounder? It, bit of both, Steve. I played first grade for Western in the Maitland Comp at about 14 or 15, so I was quite young. But, you know, yeah, I did a bit of both. So, um, yeah, just loved the cricket. But, look, um, you know, I probably would have played Newcastle first grade cricket, which is a, a really great comp if I kept playing. But, you know, rugby league was my real true passion. And um, from the age of sort of 16, 17, I, I was starting to get there with rugby league and it was all footy from there. Yeah, you said you never made a rep team and we mentioned Michael Butner earlier. Now, one thing I love about the Michael Butner story is he missed out on every rep team one year and then the following year, he's the captain of the Australian schoolboys. So he's picked up at a late age and it sounds like wow. you were too. Wow, and, um, you know, as I know, in lots of ways, life can change really quickly. Um, sometimes good, sometimes bad and... Sounds like for Mick, it, it certainly changed really quickly. But I bet you a lot of hard work went in behind the scenes from Mick to, to have that uh, luck and that change. And for me, um, you know, I, I worked really hard as a local league player. I made good choices. I could have uh, went down other paths that some of my mates went down. But I was focused on my journey. Um, I, I, there was a deep inner belief that, something special um, might, might, might happen if I, I stick to my guns. And I think, um, you know, very grateful that I, I did that. And I think, um, you know, for anyone in life, if, um, if you've got a dream and you want to believe in yourself and you want to live and breathe it and get up and chase that dream, you give yourself a really good chance. And um, whether it's footy or whether it's professional or, or family life, I, I encourage people to really chase their dreams. Yeah, I just want to say congratulations too because I just finished listening to your podcast with Dermot Brereton and it is absolutely outstanding, mate. Just so good. One of the best podcasts that I've heard. Now, Dermy, who I remember fondly, is a five-time premiership winner with Hawthorne 
And I still remember him strutting his stuff at centre-half forward. A bit of a bad boy of the AFL at times. A guy you yeah. love to hate. But, gee, he's done a fantastic interview with you, mate. Oh, that's, that's you know, thanks, mate. And um, it was great to talk to him. He's obviously a legend of AFL. I'm not, a, I'm not big on AFL, but, look, he seems like a humble, nice guy. And it was really, really great to chat with him. And, um, you know, I do the odd podcast along the way. And if I can, someone listening and they might get something out of my chat, that might inspire them or make them feel better, then it's worth every minute of my time. Yeah, well, he kind of skimmed over Curry, but I want to I want to talk to you about that Premiership winning team. So, Butes and I, we spoke at length yesterday about this. You've pretty much got the best seat in the house to watch a player by the name of Ewan McGrady weave his magic at Curry. Yes, Ewan McGrady. Now, uh, listeners might remember him from his days at Canterbury and he got a Rothmans medal. Um, and didn't want to turn up for the night or something. But what a magical player. And, yeah, I was 18. And, you know, Ewan was um, on the way. He, I think he was mid-30s. But he, you know, wasn't the best trainer, wasn't at the front in the 400-meter <laughs> run-throughs. But, wow, what a, you know, just on game day, he would just deliver this magic. You know, it was, uh, it was for me, uh, as an 18-year-old, I'm so grateful that I wasn't in the Knights junior system and that I was around men real men, you know, and local local guys that, you know, <clears throat> that played 200 games for Curry Curry and are local legends and good people. And I learn a lot off those types of guys. And um, it was really important for my, to win a premiership at Curry was huge. I, I didn't think, I, I didn't think footy could get any better for me. I was 18, it was 1995 um, and we won this premiership. The town, the way they... <laughs> The workers' club, what the, the way that we celebrated, it was it was unreal. But uh, things were going to get a bit better um, down the track. Yeah, absolutely. Steve Lenane in that team as well. Yeah, Steve Lenane, um, Dragon Knights to the to Curry, and he was the captain coach. And I just owe so much to him. He gave me an opportunity. He orchestrated Curry's wins. You know, he'd put the ball into touch. He'd start a scrap. He'd um, you know, he'd he'd pass the ball. What well, everything he did was the right moves to make sure Curry would win. And Steve Lenane, we won three premierships and had his cousin and brother in the team. Um, And, yeah, they were a huge part of um, Curry's amazing run of three premierships. So you hear these days, you hear people say, play what's in front of you or eyes up football. You hear that term quite a lot. But I'd imagine at Curry, that's exactly what your team was all about. Yeah, it was great local league, and every every team had sprinklings of NRL experience in their team. Uh, it was a really great comp to be a part of, and especially at our home ground at Curry, there the crowd were on top of you. They were very vocal. Uh, no, no opposition team liked coming there, and we'd just play some sparkling um, rugby league, um, <laughs> passing the ball and these all these great tries and. Yeah, it was really good footy to watch, um, and I, I'm just yeah, I'm really glad. I only had one year of grade, and I'm, you know, I played a fair bit of reserve grade um, and played probably five to eight first grade games, and one of them was a premiership. So I'm glad I got to experience that because I'm a curry boy at heart, and I'm still, I'm still involved in the club in a minor way. I I just I just love the joint, and you know, Johnny Sattler's a curry boy. You know, there's, there's we've we've produced so many internationals. Eddie Lumsden. Um, there's so many that are curry boys and we're all proud of it. Yeah, yeah. And what about the team of the century, which you are in starting at fullback? I mean, there's uh, Johnny Sattler's the yeah. captain of that team. Yeah, there was a, there's a, there was a, I'd say I think there's about 12 internationals in that squad and 
Yeah, that was a proud moment for me because, um, you know, growing up, just a curry boy and just loved the, the Bulldogs and to, to be named in that team was a huge honour. And, I, you know, I've got, a, I've got the jersey on the wall at home and it sits proudly and it's something that no one can ever take away from me to be in that 100-year team is, is an amazing achievement. Yeah, yeah, well said. And so you go from there and you finally get a trial. You get a taste of the Newcastle Knights. What's that trial like and what happens next? Peter Brady, uh, a curry legend, um, he was coaching the Knights 21s. So basically I uh, played the grand final and then at that point the Mariners were floating around. So I had a big meeting with them and they were very keen for me to sign and offered me at the time 20000 um, which was a lot of money. And I felt after meeting with them that I'm probably going to have to take that deal and, and go with them. But something deep inside of me said Knights. Um, I don't know what it was. So I had to go the hard way and trial with the Knights rather than sign a contract with the Mariners. And I, I scraped into the 21s that year. I was 19, and that was 1996. Uh, Denny Badiris was uh, in that team and had a, a solid year there. You know, I didn't break records, but I had a good solid year. And I, at the end of that season, there was no guarantees. I, I saw the Knights start training on the news that, that summer for, for the 97 season. And I realised uh, I wasn't there, so I rang Steve Lenane, who who was in the, as a Knights uh, reserve grade coach, and sort of said to Steve, "I'm not there. What's what's happening here?" And from there, the Curry Boys looking after Curry Boys. I um I got a trial for the '97 season in reserve grade. Yeah, what a great story that is. And so you make your debut. Is it round nine of 1997? What's that memory like for you? Yeah. So back in them days, you'd play reserve grade and come off the bench in first grade. So the first time I went on the field uh, was against Gold Coast in, on a rainy night up there. And I come off the bench and managed to score a try. We got beat in that game. Um, but I just remember getting home and I had some curry mates come down and we celebrated all night. I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. It was unreal. And then my first starting game was against the Roosters on a Friday night at Newcastle. Uh, it was raining and we had a draw there. But Wow, I just I'd made the big time. I just I couldn't believe I was out there. The noise, the the pace of the game, it was. I just was pinching myself. You know, yeah. I was twenty. I, I was I was in the local park playing eighteen months earlier. So wow, it was yeah, it was surreal. Yeah, take us inside the culture. So who's driving the culture at that point in nineteen ninety seven? And you mentioned about going from park footy straight to the NRL. I mean, what's that transition like? Well, driving culture. That's an easy answer. Uh, and that's Paul Harrigan. You know, I've never been involved with a better leader uh, in my life than Chief. And we had blokes like Mark Glanville and Tony Butterfield, seasoned, hard, been there since 88 when we started. So they were our forward leaders. But then we had the magicians, Andrew and Matty Johns, who did a lot of coaching with Mal Reilly, uh, helped structure the team. Uh, Matty was a real student of the game. Uh, with Joey was more natural just a natural uh footballer but maddie would work really hard on his game probably yeah extremely hard on his game to to get where he got in the game so we had this mixture of some really great seasoned senior guys and then we had these young outside backs um owen craigie would have been 18 i i was 20 matt gidley 19 or 20 adam mcdougall was 21 darren albert 20 21 so we were very young on the, in the outside back area, but we had some really tough, hard leaders in the forward pack. And then, 
you know, a young, a 21-year-old Andrew Johns who was playing State of Origin and um, and Matty Johns gearing us around. And, and what a leader in Mal Reilly. It's not what he said. It's, I think, the way he did it. And I'll never forget one day we were uh, in the um, pool doing our rehab after a game <laughs> and we decided that um, we'd do underwaters. So each per- we'd, we'd try and see who would go furthest underwater as a bit of a comp. And, um, you know, I, I did it and might have got 15 metres <laughs> if I'm lucky. And we all had a go and did pretty ordinary. And Mal, Mal got up out of the grandstand and walked over and he, and put his, he took his suit off. He always looked a million dollars, Mal. Put his speedos on, came over, and then he, we all parted. And then he, and he goes and he, he, he was just going so slow underwater like a turtle. But he kept going. He kept going. He did 50 metres underwater, which was – which was 20-odd metres further than any of us. And I think that's his way of saying, you know, you can do anything. And I'll never forget that moment. Yeah, what an absolute legend of the game he is. Is he back in the UK? Yeah, he is. His son lives over here uh, in Newcastle. But, um, yeah, I've been been lucky enough to be uh, really close with Mal post-Rugby League. Um, He lived here for a while and I got to know him really well and, yeah, I hope he's going well over there. He, he's a good age now, and um, but I'm sure he's still fit. And, you know, Mel, he, he, he didn't really want to talk about those days where he was so tough and what, what gladiatorial type behavior that he used to do. He was so nice and prim and proper. And But now and again, it would come out naturally. And I remember one day we were doing boxing and Stephen Crow challenged him to a fight. So they both... <laughs> Went in the ring, and I led I led Stephen Crow into the ring as 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 his trainer, and I think Matty Johns might have led Mal in, and they went at it, and Crowy put one on his nose, and Mal saw red, and it just was on, it was on for young and old for about a minute, and then Paul Harrigan had to jump in between them, but yeah, what a leader, and as like I said, not he's more of an action man leader where you just you follow his example. Yeah. So 97 must feel surreal because do you ever feel like the moons were aligned? I think you come from behind against Parramatta. North Sydney have got you on the rack. They look like making the grand final for the first time in about 40-odd years. JT has an off day with a boot. I think he misses all three Mm. conversions and you guys get home. So you're on this roll in 97. Then you take on the juggernauts that are manly. Yeah, look, Parramatta uh, were a good team that year and could probably think themselves unlucky. They were beating us, like you said, by 20 points at half time um, in the first semi. And then, yeah, with North Sydney, we're a very good team. And, and I'm sure Mick's told you all about that. But yeah, just a little bit of luck their way, um, particularly uh, Darren Albert's tackle on Matt Sears, which was out of this world. Sears, he was running about 70 metres and, and Albie got him right on the try line and uh, he couldn't get the ball down. It must go down as one of the best tackles ever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you throw in um, the off day from JT with the boot, they would think themselves very unlucky. But it just felt like it was meant to be. It was just the town was buzzing. It was electric. And um, we just felt we had this real common cause, more than just a team. We were a, we were a community. We were, a, we were playing for our town. BHP had closed earlier that year. There was a little bit going on in the town. And we, the town needed a boost. And I think once we got there, grand final day, there was this inner belief that we could we could do something very special here. Yeah, I've got to admit, they're some of the best images I've ever seen in national sport where the whole community has embraced your team. Yeah, I, I learned a lot about community at a young age from there. I, I, I know they lifted us and they, 
they help us lift that trophy. And I sort of felt said to myself, you know, I'm going to put back into this community because what they've just done for us over the last month, I'll never forget. So, yeah, to, to witness that as a 20-year-old and see the difference they make, see, see them lining the streets as we were leaving, see them lining the streets as we get home, back at the workers' club. Um, we had this parade <laughs> three days later. We had, you know, 100,000 people spread around Newcastle, you know, as we drove through in our cars. They were just magical moments, and no one that was ever there will ever forget that, and they still talk about it now. I know it's old news, but we just can't let it go. And... um it was just, yeah, just a, a magical period. Is that where you got your nickname or did that happen after Curry won the grand yeah, final? No, I got I got the nickname from there. Um, on about the fourth or fifth night, um, <laughs> we're, we're at a we're at a um, 24-hour joint and Chief was on a stool and he fell asleep in front of the men's toilet. So it was sort of blocking the door. So I, um, and it was a really rough sort of pub. It was, it was all ours. There's only, I think, me and Chief there for some reason. So I grabbed, um, I grabbed him and I put his arm around me and I picked him up and you know how big he is. And then as I've done that, everyone in the pub starts clapping and cheering their leader. And I'm trying to wobble out and I tell people they want to imagine what it's like. Think about what the Winfield Cup looks like because that's what it looked like. And I was, um, so there was little, there was me there carrying the big fella out of the, and everyone's clapping him out and he falls onto the onto the pavement, onto the footpath. I lost all control of him, but I got him out. And um, I think one of the boys said, it's not Husey, it's Boozy the next day. <laughs> and, um, and that was born. And, um, you know, we had a lot of fun with that. And that was the name that I sort of was known. And I guess in later years with charities and all that, I try to duck and weave it. But the more I tell the boys not to call me it, the more they do, of course. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you party longer and harder and uh, you're the last man standing. Well, I don't know about harder, but I was just there and I couldn't take myself away from the party and I just I just was soaking it up. You know, I didn't want to go home. So I just stood in the background, I, I sipping on my beer, mate, and just, just soaking it in. Hey, uh, can we talk about 2001? Because that's a different feeling for you guys. I mean, I think you win in week one, then you roll Cronulla 18 to 10. I was there that night. I think it was a Saturday night. And then the following week... I mean, you do go in as underdogs, but it's an absolute ambush against Parramatta, who were red-hot favourites. You lead 24-0 at halftime. Billy Peden on fire. BK, Ben Kennedy has a blinder. And Joey, well, just a masterclass. He ends up with the Clive Churchill medal. Parramatta come back, but you win 30-24 in the big one. Yeah, um, so... Uh, four years later from the 97, uh, it was a full competition. So that was a bit different. We had the split comp for 97. So it was it was nice to be part of a full competition. Um, and Parramatta had a record-breaking season. They were outstanding. Uh, they were well-coached and they were just scoring points for fun. And they were, the defence was unbreakable. And they went in as red-hot favourites. But we, we just had those big match players, um, you know, Looking back at the teams now, you look at our team and it's just chock-a-block full of champions. And, you know, that was the difference in the end. Um, we handled the occasion better in the lead-up. I feel like the week leading into it, we handled that extremely well. And then we came out and blokes like Steve Simpson and Ben Kennedy and Bill Bill Peden on the edge, uh, they got some room and scored some tries. And, um, you know, we put ourselves without... Well, I don't think we dropped the ball the whole half and... We put ourselves 24-0 up or something and, you know, the game was pretty much over at half time. Yeah. One recollection I have is I went down for the coin toss 
And I saw Nathan Kalis and he looked so intense. And then I looked at Joey and not sure if you've seen the movie Cinderella Man where Russell Crowe's character, James J. Braddock, he's got his final fight, or he thinks it is, at Madison Square Garden. And he's got this look in his eye like this is his moment. And that's how I felt with Joey. There's 90,000 in the house. Joey's looking around at the crowd and soaking it in. And he's using that to motivate himself, whereas Nathan Kalis looked too worried, in my opinion. Yeah, and look, there was another 16 of us uh, in the same mindset as Joey back in the dressing rooms, and I think there was another 16 of um, of Nathan Kalis's in the parachute rooms. You know, the, the leading in, we went to the grand final breakfast. We were having fun. We were laughing, and we looked at the paraboys, and we sort of said, wow, these guys are stiff. Um, <laughs> they're, 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 this is getting on top of them. And, um, yeah, maybe that's... That was the difference, but um, that was our day that day. But they they had a they had a wonderful season, Para. But unfortunately, you only ever really remember the Premier. Yeah. Hey, can I also ask? Two thousand and one is when you play all three games in the State of Origin series. So obviously, that's a huge thrill for you, and you show your versatility because I think you play the entire series at fullback, and your opposing number is the great Darren Lockyer before before he makes the switch to five eighth. But it's a series that's famous because someone flies back from the UK for Game 3. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, they, they brought a uh, little leprechaun back named Alan Langer <laughs> for Game 3. Um, but, yeah, look, um, I was just, once again, I probably a couple of injuries went my way, but I played a lot of fullback at times for the Knights and played played some of my best footy there at fullback. And at, at the at that period, I, I was play, had a long stretch at fullback in 01 and, um, I got a feeling David Peachy or someone got injured, sort of opened the door for me and um, went in and, yeah, just really great. It was one all leading into the third game up in Queensland and they brought Alfie back and at home they just were too good for us. But from my point of view, um, just so proud and honoured to have worn the blue jersey and, yeah, it's something that I look back very fondly. Yeah, there's a lot of people that believe Alfie should be a rugby league immortal. How do, how do you feel about that? I mean... Do you think his time will come? Yeah, well, I, I think if you're an immortal, you've, you've done something to really change the game. And Alfie being so small, I think he changed um, a lot of people's views on you had to be big to play footy because he was so tiny and small, but he mixed it with everyone in, in what's a, a physical game. And he gave hope to you know that little kid on the street that wants to play rugby league, and he did it for a long time. So... You'd have no um, no qualms from from me if um, Alfie was put in as a model. There's look, there's a lot of wonderful players still waiting in the wings um, for, to join this exclusive club, and I think Alfie's got to be in the queue there somewhere. Husey, uh, you go and play in Catalans, so you have one final stint there. Well, I mean, they're a juggernaut now. They made the Super League Grand Final last year. What were they like when you went there, and how is your French? <laughs> uh, my French was very poor. I did try and learn a bit over there. But, um, yeah, the last couple of years were quite injury-interrupted uh, for me at the Knights, which was, you know, that's just part of the game. And it was time for me to finish there and, and look for another opportunity. And, um, yeah, Catalan Dragons, so the south of France, I went over there. I was I remember helping paint the gym when I got there. Like, it was... It was grassroots back then. <laughs> uh, had the honour of scoring their first try um, against Wigan. And, yeah, had a really good year there. Actually, I enjoyed it. Played 20-odd games, 
Stacey Jones was one of our leading players there, and I enjoyed um, Stacey and enjoyed meeting the French and, you know, to this day, um, follow them closely and um, really proud of where they are at at the moment. Now, mate, we've been going for over 30 minutes. It's probably remiss of me, but I love a good love story. So when does Kira Lee come on the scene? Uh, so um, the end of 2001, I was I was at Newcastle races one Saturday afternoon for a couple of the boys, and um, somehow we crossed paths and we had a good chat, and um, it sort of went from there. So that was um, I would have been 20, almost, probably t- close to 25 years of age um, back then, and um, haven't looked back since. Um, I was living with um, uh, Danny Badiris. We lived together for about four years, three or four years. Had a great great time there but um we both sort of found um partners within the space of a year or so and they that sort of broke up our our house uh, the bromance <laughs> yes but um you know it's, it's really great that we're such still best friends today and our families are going to new zealand for a holiday in in a, in a month's time so i'm looking forward to that yeah fantastic and and three kids zach dane and also bonnie yep. bonnie yep three kids um so yep proud of all them it's, um, you know, it can be a busy, like everyone's lives, you get busy and, you know, with the foundation and I've got, with the gyms, life can get busy. So I'm, I'm looking forward to slowing up a bit over the summer period. So, Husey, 2013, your life changes forever, and it starts with a couple of headaches. Is that correct? Yes, Steve. So, I was 36 years of age at the time, and um, life was going well. Uh, three children under 10. And I just uh, I had headaches from nowhere. And um, for, the, for a full day, which was very, very weird, I thought maybe it was a migraine, and woke up and was headaches again the next day. And then that afternoon, I went and saw my doctor, and he seemed a bit funny about it and um, sent me straight for a scan and had that scan that afternoon. And from that point, um, my life was turned upside down. Um, it, my life had changed. And uh, I was at the start of what was going to be a um, horrific battle. Yeah, I'd imagine that first diagnosis, you're just absolutely numb. And I, I believe Kiralee said she actually collapsed when she heard the news. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, obviously uh, it puts a lot of pressure on the people around you and I probably handled it better than a lot and obviously Kira Lee took a lot of it on board and um, felt the strain and, yeah, it was really tough on her um, and our families, you know, my parents and her parents and my kids were pretty young so it didn't it didn't really affect them too bad. Um, but, you know, so for, once, once I was... Um, walked into the doctors a week after surgery and the, the doctor sort of said to me, said to us, um, sorry, Mark, uh, you've got high-grade brain cancer. Um, that's, that, that was the point that really struck home to us when we were delivered that news because we had a little bit of hope that the, the, the tumour wasn't cancerous, but not to be. So, yeah, we definitely spent a month or so soul-searching and, and, you know, for me, my, my, my thoughts were spiralling out of control, so it was a tough time. Um, you know, but I was surrounded by some great family, great friends, and um, you know, worked my way through it. Yeah, from what I heard on the Dermot Brereton podcast, you pretty much went in search of some kind of positivity. So the second diagnosis is even worse than the first. 
But then you go to Sydney looking for some more answers and what did you find? Yeah, so I went to another doctor getting ready for my treatment and um, the news just seemed to get worse. So we rang around and found out that uh, potentially the best in the, in, in the brain cancer field were down at the Royal North Shore in Sydney. So we um, we got got ourselves down to there as fast as we could. And it was like a la- it was like if this fails, we've got no hope. I remember my dad drove me down and I was in the front seat. Kira Lee was in the back seat. She had pillows. She was just laying down in the back almost lifeless um it was really tough but got there went and seen them and i remember being quite nervous because you know and i needed some decent news i needed some hope and um they looked at this they looked at the uh, tumor they they gave me all the readings of you know what 10 percent this and six percent this that's a good thing and they they started like breaking it all down and said there's some some nice little parts of this tumor that might give you a favorable outcome so they said there's some real serious hope. And from that point on, I think our mindset changed a bit because we had some hope that we could make a go of this. As soon as the, that was there and the option was um, surgery, you've, you've really got no choice. You've got to get this thing out. And I put the faith in uh, my wonderful doctor and he, he done a great job removing the tumour. Mm. Well, removing it as much as you can. Uh, you're dealing with the brain. It's, it's very hard. And, you know, it all, the surgery went well, radiation started, chemotherapy, and I was just starting my fight back, I guess. Yeah, we talk about toughness in rugby league, but Husey, you have 33 radiation sessions, six months of oral chemotherapy. I mean, that must have just been brutal, absolutely brutal. Yeah, look, it was tough. I got it down at the Central Coast of the uh, cancer hospital down there they were wonderful down there so I'd get a lift every day I couldn't drive and from different people and it was nice to catch up with friends and teammates and family as I was getting lifts every day um, got through that well I had um, former teammate Ben Kennedy at the time every afternoon of radiation we I'd come home and I'd do some run-throughs with him and then we'd do some swimming in the ocean bars and I'd never forget it was a really good thing um I wanted to keep moving. I wanted I wanted to give myself every chance of getting fit and healthy again, and uh, that was just something I chose to do at the time, hoping that it um it just might help my recovery. So your premiership teammates all rally around you at the time and try to help you through this. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, my former teammates have just been amazing, you know, and especially um you know when you do something special with a group of blokes, you you you're binded for life and. You know, the support from, you know, going on treks. We've done all these amazing treks. Um, Adam McDougall and the Manshape have done so much sponsorship for us, uh, over 500,000. Um, and just being there for me, just mates being there for me. And, you know, it's brought us closer together. And, um, you know, I'll never forget the support that I've got off these guys. Yeah, it's why we love the Newcastle Knights. And so Kiralee, I mean, there should be some kind of statue of her. So... Like, she really is a hero uh, through this period where you decide to start the foundation. Yeah, well, not only does she run the family, um, she runs the foundation. And it started with me and her and a, some close friends. And, yeah, it just uh, it come out of the ground and with her driving it and, and some close friends and family. But, yeah, it's really, it, hasn't ha- it doesn't happen without her. And, you know, the foundation started probably earlier than what a lot of people recommended. Um, just they, they recommended that I 
continue focusing on myself. But it was, I'm really glad that we changed the focus and, and, and focused on fixing the problem. And before I knew it, we were launching the foundation and getting, uh, getting underway with raising money. So while you're still recovering, it's almost like therapy for you to work within the foundation. Yeah, and I think um, in life, everyone gets so busy and focused on themselves that it's really healthy and really good to just simply help someone, just make a difference, make someone's day a little bit better. And yeah, I've certainly realized that um, <clears throat> the power in, in you know, helping people and, 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 you know, making a difference. And the foundation has gave, given my family wonderful, positive thoughts uh, rather than focusing on my situation. Hey, Mark, like everyone, we're all sad to hear the passing of Olivia Newton-John. Uh, just an absolute icon, a hero, just so beautiful. And she said that when she was diagnosed, she didn't want to know a time frame because she felt like that would really hamper yeah, her life. How about for you? Did you want brutal honesty or did you want to see how things unfolded? Yeah, I, I, did, I wanted to see how things unfolded. I've never, I've never Googled or looked up my situation. I don't even know the name of my tumour. Um, I just know um, that I'm going to, you know, fight this thing so hard day in, day out, and that's all that matters. And, you know, I'm pretty focused on the present and on on now, and I just want to make today the best I can, and I'll wake up tomorrow and start again. And, you know, I don't want to look too far into the future and worry about that. I'll just focus on now. Well, you've been quoted as saying the battle is over, but we're still fighting the war. And I'm glad on your website... I see there's a beautiful tribute to Maddie Callender, who we lost from Channel 9, of course, and that's where Beanies for Brain Cancer Round started, I guess, and he was such a a great driver of our favourite round of the National Rugby League. Yeah, Steve, unfortunately, uh, I meet so many people in this journey, um, and they're usually in the prime of their lives, and they don't get the opportunities that I'm getting. And um, the Callender family, I met Matt, and um, when he was, you know, he was quite sick and um, he just sort of said, I want to help open some doors here and, and really improve this beanie stuff that you're doing. Because the Knights had hosted Beanie Day for us and we'd been doing a lot of local stuff. But then um, Matt Callender really um, opened the doors whilst being very sick. And we had meetings down there at uh, Channel 9 and we had meetings with NRL and Matt was opening doors with his family, his wife Anne, and, their, and his dad Kenny Callender. And um, before we knew it, the NRL Beanie for Brain Cancer Round was born. And I sort of pledged to Matt that, you know, I'll do my very best um, to do us proud with this and keep driving it. And you know, I'm very proud to say that my team uh, and all our supporters have done that, and it just seems to get bigger and better every year. So, Husey, you're now close to $30 million. Is that correct? And, I mean, that's just absolutely staggering that you've raised that amount of money. Yeah, it sure is, Steve. It's, um, it's, it's really mind-boggling to think about it. And when I think about, you know, that we started pretty much when I was on my recovery ward bed and um, we've got a team of um, three or four part-time staff here. We've got so many volunteers. You know, I'm a volunteer. There's just so much heart in this foundation and I think people see that and they, they, they get behind what we're doing. And we've got lots to do, you know. Um, you know, we've got brain cancer care nurses throughout regional New South Wales doing an amazing job day in, day out. 
We've got researchers right across Australia. We've got biobanks, which means that uh, we've, we're forming these massive library of tumours and full brains that people donate so that our researchers can use that material um, down the track. Um, and probably the biggest thing is we've recently announced that the, uh, with the University of Newcastle, the Mark Hughes Foundation Brain Cancer Centre, um, it's a huge thing. It's a huge investment, but it's um, going to be world-class and we're, we're currently searching for more researchers uh, to head that. But we've got a team in there. We're building the team every as quick as we can. And, you know, it's going to be world-class. And, you know, I'm really comfortable and confident that um, we're going to create some history because all this, all this um, beanies and raising money is great, but the real thing we need is we need answers. We need hope. We need better medicines. We need targeted treatments, and that's what we're working on, and that's that's what the Mark Hughes Foundation is all about. Yeah, I mean, I had a good cry this morning having a look at your website. There's uh, some tributes to some people that have that we've recently lost. There's an entire honour roll on your website as well, which is incredibly moving. But Mark, let's just change tack momentarily. You told me off the air that you've started a new business. And this is something that you're really passionate about now. It's all about fitness and you're training with less oxygen. Is that correct? Yeah, Steve. So I um, sort of made a decision once I got sick that I'm, I wanted to do anything that's, um, that sort of gives back and makes a real difference. And that's why I focused on the foundation. But then I stumbled across uh, Air Locker Training uh, when I was about to go to Mount Kilimanjaro for a fundraiser. It just opened up in Newcastle and I quickly got to know the guys and became a partner in this business. And it's, it's group training, but it's done at altitude, simulated altitude. So you don't have to go to Mount Everest to be 5,000 metres above sea level. You can do it in our gym. And we do these awesome um, group training activities. Um, so you might have anywhere from sort of 30 to 40 people in the class. And we take the oxygen out of the air. So you, your body responds to that and it, you... You can feel it and you do a bit less, but you can gain more, which is a good thing. And it's less impact on your body. And I have Chief coming in. I have young <laughs> 18-year-old girls. i got my wife. We've got everyone coming into our communities and they love the training. And um, it's a really great thing to be a part of. So, um, yeah, airlocker training, it's growing. We're franchising it out. So um, I'm hoping uh, one will be coming to a place near you soon. For yeah. Sure. Yeah, sounds good. And you know what Bob Beeman did in the long jump in Mexico City in 1968? He smashed the world record, uh, blew it to smithereens, and that was at altitude as well. Yeah, and that's what the Olympians were doing. They were going to the mountains and they were they were training and they were winning gold medals by, by getting themselves prepared for Olympics um, on these high-altitude areas. So uh, the wonderful thing about airlocker training is now that you can live in your own, sleep in your own bed and then come and train with us and... Yeah, we're really proud of it, and um, I love seeing people come in, and uh, it makes their day, and it makes their day go better. And you know, with there's so much you know mental illness and all that out there these days, I think it's so important to keep moving. You know, no matter what, keep moving forward. And um, it's something that I've done, and um, I love seeing all our members do it. So that'll have you in great shape for Nepal, which is the the next big one for the Mark Hughes Foundation. Yeah, so another big thing for the foundation, my mate Billy Peden and Paul Harrigan, teammates of mine, decided we needed to challenge ourselves and we needed to raise money. So about six or seven years ago, we decided to um, go over to Kokoda in PNG. And not at, so there was about eight of us and um, a few teammates and just great community people. 
And we decided we rode our mountain bikes 100 k's over there, and then we walked the Kokoda track. It was it was an unbelievable experience. We, it was that good that we decided um, to go to um, Nepal the next year and do um, base camp Mount Everest. We had uh, Beaver Menzies join us and in the headgear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Steve and Matty Johns came along and joined us with that one, amongst a lot of other former players. And uh, then we did Borneo, then we did um, Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, which is the highest freestanding mountain in the world. Now, we were lucky enough to have Trent Robinson, um, the Roosters coach, join us on that one. And what an inspiring, amazing leader he is. And then we did, uh, this year we went to Darwin and rode mountain bikes up in Kakadu, 400 k's in in 40 degree heat so in doing that everyone pays their own way and then we raise a lot of money and it's a really win-win and you know it reminds me of teamwork uh steve where you're you're just away with with a group of blokes and women and you just you're in the trenches and you just keep moving forward at your pace and i think that's what life's about yeah it sounds like a rocky movie that keep moving forward butte and i might have to come on one of these with you hey uh, i just want to talk to you about the newcastle knights uh your beloved knights haven't won since 2001 yeah they played finals last year but it looks like they took a big step backwards this year and the number seven jump is almost like a poison chalice since joey left the club could you share your thoughts on why they've struggled since those halcyon days yeah, well, I think in recent times, um, I think we lost Mitchell Pearce at the start of the season. And, you know, yeah, sure, he had his knockers, but he was experienced and he knew how to steer a team around. And when we lost him, we didn't replace him. So these days, the spine gets talked about a lot, but it's so important. You're number nine, you're number seven, you're number six, and you're number one. Well, unfortunately for us, our number nine got injured early. So really, our number nine was developing, our number seven was developing, our number six we had lots of different number sixes. We had Kalen at fullback, who on his day is brilliant, but he's had some injuries this year. Um, so unfortunately, he hasn't been on the paddock. So in these key positions, Steve, we, we're just we're not at the top of our game. And you look at the good teams that are still in the comp, you look at their spine, their experience, and their cohesion. Um, yeah, it's another world from us. So we've got to find some answers in these areas now. I hear Brooks getting mentioned, uh, but I think he's tied up still with the Tigers. Um, they don't grow on trees either. So it's one thing saying you need a new halfback, need a new 5'8", but where are they? Yeah, absolutely. I guess one of the real positives for the footy club is the women's team. you got Tamika Upton this year, the superstar from Rockhampton. Millie Boyle has come on board, and I'm sure you'd love Jesse Southwell, who's an absolute gun at halfback, and they're number two in the competition, almost beat the reigning premiers last weekend and faced St. George Illawarra this weekend, but what a breath of fresh air women's oh, rugby league is. It sure is, mate. And I, I met the team there a few weeks ago, and, yeah, they're just a great bunch. They're so grateful to be in the position they're in. They're at their training at the Knights Centre of Excellence, which is a, a world-class facility. It's amazing, and they're just so happy and thankful and grateful and they're like sponges. They want to learn. And um, they've got some great leadership. Millie Boyle's a wonderful leader. They've got some great players. So, yeah, with a bit of luck, um, they'll get in a grand final. Uh, and, you know, they're every chance of winning that. So, yeah, it's really, really great to see them going so well. Before we wrap this up, I've just got to say it's probably the fastest hour I've ever had. So, mate, it's gone so quickly. And I thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Who do you think is in the box seat to win in 2022? It looks like it'll be hard to beat the Panthers. 
Yeah, for sure, Steve. Um, you know, I just uh, spent a bit of time with Ivan Cleary at a talk about two months ago, and he was talking about the culture and the way they do it, and I couldn't have been more impressed. And, um, you know, he's son at halfback. He's fresh. He's ready. I don't want to say unbeatable, but, geez, I reckon I reckon almost unbeatable in the grand final. If they're vulnerable, it might be next game uh, after that big win they just had. But, geez, they're a good team. So there's six teams left, but I really feel that, it's Penrith to lose at the moment. Yeah. This might be a little deep and meaningful, but Mark, do you ever feel that this was your destiny? I mean, sometimes I feel that, you know, we've all got a purpose why we're on earth and you won two premierships, but I think you've changed so many lives with what you've accomplished since 2013. Yeah. I've thought about this a little bit and um, like, I know they say that everything happens for a reason, but I think some of the the devastation and what I've seen and and that in this journey has probably made me to think that no, not everything does happen for a reason. Um, but when you look at my situation, I feel like I was in training for this moment. Um, my upbringing at Curry, my resilience, um, rugby league. I had to I had to I had to fight for every meter of yardage, and you know I was not as strong as everyone or fast, so I I had to work really hard at my rugby league. So everything I've done, I've had to I've had to work hard at, but I have shown resilience. Um, I, I, I've I've been involved in the community a long time, and I think the community are paying me back now. Yeah, it has been a wonderful ride, mate. Um, I probably still would change it if I was to, so I could be healthy, but um, I can't do that. So I'm just going to run with this, continue to do my work. I've got work to do, and I'm going to do it till I create history and solve brain cancer. So it's it's exciting. You said resilient. And that's one of the words the Knights website uses to describe Mark Hughes. Brave, adaptable, inspiring, reliable and resilient. Mark, uh, I said I had a good cry earlier today because uh, I want to dedicate this episode to Matthew Liam Lamb. So, young man who is around about the same age as my son. And uh, in July 2021, nothing showed up with his initial MRI. He had a biopsy in December last year and, and passed away recently at the age of 20. And, you know, that's that's why you're working so hard to find a cure, mate. So yeah. congratulations yeah. to you and your team. And in memory of Matthew, Liam, Lamb and everyone who's lost their lives to brain cancer, keep up the good fight. Thanks, Steve. And to the, to the Lamb family, I'm so sorry that, you know, what we're doing hasn't helped your situation, but just know... Um, we're devastated and that we want to find a cure so that your family and other families don't have to keep going through this um, this disgusting disease. Um, so, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Steve. It's um, it's tough to, you know, I, I, I wear it on my sleeve when I hear this stuff. So appreciate that. And, mate, thanks for your chat. I lo- always love catching up with you. And um, it's been, like you said, that hour's gone really quick and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you yeah well done mate congratulations buddy uh giving you a another standing ovation and uh thanks for your time on the perfect 10 ah thanks steve and, and sit uh, sit back down now mate <laughs> thanks again mate talk soon thank you see you mate mark hughes Two-time Premiership winner with the Newcastle Knights, former New South Wales Blue in State of Origin, and along with his wife, Kiralee, and their family, founders of the Mark Hughes Foundation. 
What an absolute legend. A guy that I love and I've been really privileged that he's been so generous with his time in the last couple of decades on the radio shows that I host and now on the Perfect 10 podcast. As always, we do this thanks to Robson Civil Projects. Recently, I caught up with their managing director, Grant Robson, and he told me about one of the jobs that they're most proud of, and he feels like they gain respect and also lifted their profile as a business in New South Wales. Well, I think the, the main one that really stands out for me when I have to think about it is probably the, the Gosford passing loops on, on the rail down there at Gosford, just, just opposite Gosford High School there and heading out towards um, Brian Hilton Toyota. That was probably one of the biggest jobs we'd undertaken at the time, so it was a little bit nervous, but um, it went really well and we had a great partnership with Downer. We were a subcontractor to them and, yeah, it went really well and it was a good job for the business and I think it probably lifted us to that next level of, of project size. Grant Robson, Managing Director of Robson Civil Projects, proud naming rights partner of The Perfect Ten. Thank you again to Mark Hughes and his entire team at the Mark Hughes Foundation for making the podcast possible, if you get the chance, check out the website, markhughesfoundation.com.au. Maybe you'd like to host a fundraiser at your workplace or with your family and friends. Lots of great stories and also merchandise available there too, markhughesfoundation.com.au. Thanks for listening. Take care. And we'll catch you next time on The Perfect Ten. Mm-hmm.